At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 658th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is growing fruit trees while adapting to changing climates. We're talking with Mike Biltonen about regenerative orcharding with climate change. Mike has spent nearly 40 years in agriculture, working mostly with orchards, vineyards, and specialty veg and fruit crops. An early passion for sustainable agriculture evolved into a profound dedication to the principles and practices of ecologically focused, biodynamically driven farming. For the last 15 years, Mike has worked as a consultant to novice and seasoned farmers and orchardists on all aspects of managing regenerative and integrated farmscapes. Mike conducts workshops, seminars, webinars, and has a free newsletter for the truly dedicated. He co-owns Know Your Roots, a novel and innovative family-owned company with his wife, Debbie, where they are synchronously, synchronously... Yes, I said it right, synchronously using farming and herbalism practices to heal the earth. Welcome to the show today, Mike. Are you ready to rock? Rock and roll, man. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. I love it. I tripped over that word, but I'm going to leave it there because it was a little bit funny. So I, the way I said it. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and talk more about the path you took to get where you're at today? The path was a little circuitous as it is for most people. I didn't actually grow up on a farm, but my mom did. Mm. And so for like the first 12 years of my life on summer vacations, winter vacations, we would go to my grandfather's farm in Kansas. Me too. My grandfather's farm was in Vancouver, BC. Wow. Oh, wow. I love Vancouver, that whole part. I love British Columbia just in general. Yeah. It's beautiful up there. Oh my God. Sorry about that. I just got so excited because we kind of have a shared history there. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I liked going to the farm and I got to ride around with my uncle on the tractor and just kind of play around. And so it sort of, you know, sowed the seed for what would come in my early 20s. And I, I loved when I was a teenager backpacking and being outside. So I always loved the outdoors. But again, no real direction towards agriculture or anything to do with farming or gardening. And then as a sophomore in, in college, I was taking horticulture classes and a classmate of mine got up and basically said, my father owns a large orchard outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. We're looking for summer help. Is anybody interested? Wow. And, and I had no clue about any of this. So I said, sure. You know, I didn't have a job at that point and I, it was close to home. So I could, could work there and stay at home and earn some money. Uh, little did I know it would be the largest orchard that I ever worked at. 1,500 acres. They had about 600 acres of peaches, 900 acres of apples. Wow. And so it was sort of a baptism by fire, but I loved it. And I never, I never looked back. And so for the rest of my college career, I worked there part-time. I went to work there full-time 
after I graduated for about three years. And then I left to go to graduate school at Cornell to get a master's degree. I started a PhD project, but I realized that what I really liked was, was working outside with the plants, which I would be able to do with a PhD project, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time with data collection and statistics, even though I appreciate that, that side of it very much, mm-hmm. and people who want to do that. So I went to Minnesota and I took a job at a fairly large orchard out there, kind of, I guess, somewhat known as the home of Honeycrisp, Pepin Heights Orchard. And I worked there until the late 90s. And then I moved to New York and I've been, you know, in production agriculture or was in production agriculture until 2014 when I left to go into consulting. And I did that just because I, I wanted to put my years of experience to good use and to be able to work with other farmers and other situations. And as I like to say, I am easily bored. So <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot more interesting working with 12 different farms and farmers than just one. So but farming is is far from boring. So and that's that's kind of where I'm at today, you know, just loving what I do. Oh, nice. And we've both seen it in spades, especially over the past couple of years, this whole notion of climate change, either hotter temperatures, colder temperatures, hot winds. What are you seeing out there? Well, I think, you know, what I'm seeing is that there is no, no, no new, there's no normal anymore. Mm. It's really, every year is kind of a, a coin toss about which way it's going to go. I've, I've seen this before, but there were a couple of articles that I ran across over the past few days about, and I'll get the acronym is AOMC, and it stands for the Atlantic Oceanic Meridial Current, I believe. Oh, yes. It all, has to, it all has to do with how the circulation of the water in the Atlantic Ocean helps to moderate the climate. And this whole system is starting to collapse and stall out, which means that it's going to get a lot warmer closer to the equator and get a lot cooler closer to the, you know, the, the pole, the North Pole. And this is, it's, it's interesting because it's a very complicated concept. And I don't know how one can really model, much less predict what's going to happen very easily because nobody's been, nobody was ever alive when this last happened, which was, you know, 10, 15,000 years ago. But what I'm seeing is a lot more variability in the climate. For example, in the Northeast this year, we had a very long, steady winter, a very long, cool spring, and then a very hot, wet beginning to the summer. And now we've settled into these very moderate temperatures. And which is which is all the rain was great because the last two years we had been, I mean, not by you know desert southwest standards, but from a, a northeast standard, we were in a drought situation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the biggest thing that I'm seeing is that we don't know what to expect from year to year. There's just there's so much variability. You know, we have what is is it going to be too hot, too dry, too wet, too cold? Are is it going to be late, windy? Are we going to get a late freeze? Yeah, or are we not going to get any freeze at all? And you know, it makes it difficult from a planning standpoint. I mean, I work primarily with orchards, but I also work with specialty veg crops. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for them to get crops in the ground. Or when they did, then it just would rain torrentially for three days and, you know, drown everything that they just worked on. So I think, you know, that is that and that kind of is the focus of what I do mostly is try and work with farmers on how to not necessarily predict what next year is going to be like, but just to assume that we're pretty sure we're, we don't know what next year is going to look like and to prepare, prepare for all eventualities. So to build resiliency into our farming and, uh, you know, whether it's row crops or, or orchards, to build resiliency into our farms and orchards. And how are you doing that? 
for the longest time, I was focused on what we would consider to be very kind of siloed specialty interests um, or focuses within horticulture. So it could be entomology, it could be pathology. But what I've realized is that what I do now is pretty much crop neutral because it's all focused on the soil. And we have in agriculture <laughs> ignored, ignored the soil for so long, yep. whether it's over fertilization, over tillage, herbicides, you know, whatever the case is, we have, you know, and, and we've destroyed the soil. And so helping farmers not just help to rebuild the soil, but to rebuild soils that are resilient for the long term, because this resiliency, this strong soil food web, you know, really focusing on the biology balanced nutrition, biodiversity, that's, what ha- that's the support system for the crops that we grow. And without a very strong soil system, you know, we can't have those resilient trees and vines and lettuce and radishes and all that kind of stuff. And forage too for animals. Right. Now, are you getting people coming to you and asking you for this help? Or are you going out to them telling them, hey, you should look at this? I work with a wide range of clients growers. Uh-huh. Uh, some, some growers I'll work, I'll actually visit their farm or orchard every week uh, through the growing season. Others, it's a bit more infrequent, but still on a regular basis. I think one of the things that I insist on is that there's, there's not really a one and done type of conversation I can have. Right. I can't sit down with anybody and in two hours, tell them everything that they need to know. I'm certainly available to answer questions, but the focus is to have an ongoing relationship you know, visiting the grower every week or once a month throughout the growing season, and then from year to year to help monitor and and adjust the progress too, because not everything that we do works the way that we want it to, and and things change. Yeah, and the reason I ask that question that way is I'm wondering how receptive farmers are and orchardists are to the concepts you're bringing. I will say that I have a very strong migration towards farmers that already understand that there's an issue that they need to deal with and that they're not quite sure what to do about, or they just, they want, you know, a different type of expertise or a different set of eyes on it. Um, There's a wide range of of farmers, orchardists, vineyardists that I don't work with who are very conventionally minded, Mm -hmm. who think that, you know, I guess I don't mean this in a negative way, but who think they've kind of got it figured out or they've got a, a, they've been doing it for 20 or 30 years. So they're going to continue to do it that way. I'll certainly work with conventional growers that understand that there's an issue and are not quite sure what the next step should be mm-hmm. towards a more sustainable, more resilient system. But anybody who's pretty much entrenched in what they're doing or how they're doing, if, it, if it's contrary to my quote unquote mission, I guess, you know, I just, I just don't end up working with them yeah. very often. So that was a long answer. So the people I work with are very receptive. They understand there's an issue out there. And they, they need the guidance and the experience to help them get where they want to go. Yeah. That's what I found in what I do is that I pretty much put out the message out there. Hey, here's how you can build soil, grow a healthy garden, you know, start a farm in your back and front yard. But then people come to me and those are the people that I'm working with. And there's plenty of those. And I'm, I'm, it's sounding like you've got a pl- plenty big list too. Um, I do. I work with nice. farmers from West Virginia all the way to Vermont. Not on a regular basis. Most of it's focused in Eastern and Central New York, mm-hmm. but I've, I've got a, a fairly diverse client base that stretches a, a good stretch of the East Coast. You know, one of the things I've noticed in the work that I do with fruit trees here, and you and I have talked about fruit trees 
before on a couple other occasions, is that standing back and having clients that contact me and say, hey, what's going on with my fruit trees gives me an opportunity to see a wide range of issues that are happening out there. And I can mine those issues for value that I can bring to my other clients. I'm sure you're finding that, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things that keeps me going, and I know we'll get into that here a little bit later, but is that, well, one, one, every year is different. Two, every situation is different. And three, there's always something new to learn or a new twist, a new, a new twist on an old situation. Like this year it was all fire blight cicadas. That was like, that was our big issue this year. Mm -hmm. So. Wow. Yeah. And we don't, we don't have to deal with that here really, which is nice. We had heat issues here this year. You know, things just cooked because it got so hot so early. So where do you see looking into the future? Where do you see that our food will come from? I think that quite honestly, it's not going to come from California or the Southwest. Right. I think the, I think the statistic is something like 40% of the nation's food is grown in California or Arizona right now. With the water issues that are going on, the heat issues that are going on, we're, that's going to shift. And we do know that there are, uh, in the Northeast, there's already farmers from that part of the country that are buying land in the Northeast, Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts to some degree, wow, Ohio, because they, the, the climate's going to be, even though there's going to be changes and we don't know what nature's going to throw at us, it's going to be a lot more moderate here in terms of you know the heat. We'll get better rainfall. Water is not an issue for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I think that that 40% is going to shift a lot towards away from the West, towards the, the East and the, you know, the, the beginning of the Midwest, you know, the Ohio, Indiana area into yeah. Pennsylvania, New York. Wow. That's a, a startling realization, isn't it? Considering how much food comes from California and Arizona. Well, I mean, if you, if you look at the daily disasters that are out of California, you know, not, and not just you know, drought induced or heat induced, but well, they are induced, but they're kind of secondary of where ranchers and orchardists are, they're pushing out vineyards or they're pushing out almond groves or they're cutting down avocados or cherries uh, simply because they can't, you know, there's no water to feed those trees. What do those of us who grow food need to do to move forward? First and foremost, we need, everybody needs to recognize that there's an issue here. Right. You know, when it comes to California water, it's not a Los Angeles, San Francisco issue. There's just not enough snowpack in the Sierras to feed California the way that it did 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago. So we need to be much more aware of what it takes to conserve water and put the water to the highest, best use. I mean, I look, I love almonds. I think almond groves are beautiful. Fact is, they're very greedy when it comes to water. Yeah. And the it's almonds not are. the almonds are. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a staple item. Unfortunately, we can't grow almonds anywhere other than California. And 90 percent of the world's almonds are already grown in California. <laughs> right. But we need to start putting our resources where the highest, best value is. And just, you know, and, and the first step is to recognize there's a problem. The other, I think, is to really diversify our production. There's a lot of arable land east of California, Arizona, that is in for, in production for corn and soybeans that essentially just gets fed to livestock that could be used to grow other types of crops that are you know higher foods for hu- higher calorie density for humans 
Exactly. And then that's the other part is that we need to, we need to focus on increasing the nutrient density of the food that we grow for humans. It's, it can't be all just about sheer production. It's not about calories in, calories out. And one of the ways to do that, and I come at, come at it from the permaculture perspective, you come at it from a different perspective, a little bit different perspective. Tell us about that. Well, there's certainly permaculture principles that are incorporated into what I do, especially when we're talking about water conservation. Even here in the Northeast, there, there are years, we need to be more aware of it here in the Northeast. We often think that we get enough water, yep. but you know, up until this spring, we were in a deficit for the last few years. So, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm into it from a, almost a biodiversity standpoint. I think that we, our farms need to be smaller. They need to be more local. There needs to be a network of small farms and small farm food distributors that get food to where it needs to go more, more locally or even bioregionally than what we have now, which is trucking food across the country. Or the and world. Build, or the world. Yeah. Well, definitely across the world. And by doing that, we strengthen the local farm community. We encourage, I think, more organic, more biodynamic, more holistic growing. You know, at the base, a more sustainable style of growing, even if it's not organic or biodynamic. Uh, if we could just become more sustainable, I think that would be great. And so when I say I come at it from a biodiversity standpoint, that means that I'm very much into helping people learn about the entomology and the pathology and the physiology of what's going on on their farms, because understanding those basic issues, whether it's learning about a specific insect pest or a disease or understanding how photosynthesis and respiration work in concert, it helps people understand what goes into building a resilient farm system. And then the other part of it is, is I come at it very biodynamic, which is different too, which is looking at it as us not, us being the farmers, not separate from the farms that we work on and to almost take a spiritual approach to working with the plants and the soil and the land that we have. And that harkens back to my grandfather. I mean, you know, biodynamics, Rudolf Steiner yep. gave the agriculture lecture in 1924. My grandfather at that point was, was 26, and I'm sure he'd never, ever heard of Rudolf Steiner, but he still had a very holistic way of farming that allowed him to escape the, the Dust Bowl. I mean, he was in Southeast Kansas when the Dust Bowl was going on, uh, and I know uh, I never had the opportunity to ask him specifically about that, but it, it was a very holistic way. And so we, we kind of need to look back a little bit to understand what good, solid, sustainable agronomic practices are, and that we're as much a, as part of the system as the crops that we grow. And once we begin to do that, it's hard to untether ourselves from the farm so that we're not at dealing with it is strictly kind of a production system. So marrying kind of the biodiversity of having more diversity, different crops, beneficial insect species, pollinator strips, et cetera, and a more spiritual grounded approach. And I know spiritual can be kind of a trigger word for some people, but it's really just about having a grounded approach, being one with the land that you work, the farms, the orchards, the vineyards, et cetera. Wow. And tell us a little bit more about biodynamic. Well, biodynamic agriculture is, it can be a very big rabbit hole. But apart from that, in 1924, Rudolf Steiner gave a series of lectures uh, in June in Austria mm -hmm. that outlined how he viewed agriculture and what it needed to do and where it needed to go to address 
the impetus for the lecture, which was the fact that a bunch of farmers had come to him. And even in the mid-20s, they said, we're seeing the land degrade. The potatoes aren't as good as they used to be. The, the crops aren't as, as healthy. The land is just, it's different. Something's going on. And even though we think of like 1920s as 100 years ago, which in fact it was, even though it was in its infancy, it was still in a very industrialized state at that point or moving rapidly, mm -hmm. whether it was machinery or synthetic fertilizers or pesticides, it was rapidly moving in that direction. And it was already starting to have a profound effect. So these farmers were seeing the repercussions of this industrialization of agriculture, came to Rudolf Steiner, and he gave these eight lectures, which outlined what biodynamic agriculture meant. And without getting into all the, the cosmological aspects of it, because there are some planetary associations that it's important to, for one to understand in order to truly grasp the, the principle of agri agricultural biodynamic agriculture. What it focuses on are the use of these nine preparations. And these nine preparations are, there's, and I'll just go through them real quick, and they're referred to as 500 through 508. And there's 500, which is the horn manure, 501, which is horn silica, 502, which is yarrow, 503, which is chamomile, 504, which is nettles, 505, which is oak bark, 506, which is dandelion, 507, which is valerian, and 508, which is horsetail. And that together, those make up all that's really needed to re-energize the farm and orchard. Now, there's a lot of detail that goes in with that, and each of those has a, a specific use, if you will. Uh -huh. But what they're not intended to be is a replacement for fertilizers or a replacement for insecticides or fungicides. Because even though it's not truly homeopathic, they are used at homeopathic levels, so very small levels. So where we might apply 300 pounds to the acre of a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, we might use a half a cup of the horn manure to over an entire acre. Yeah. And so we're using the equivalent of homeopathic quantities to bring these this energy uh, and these characteristics to the land. And in essence, the base, the take-home message from what Rudolf Steiner had to say is that we, we need to revitalize the soil. We need to revitalize the land. And the way to do it is with these cosmically charged biodynamic preparations, which again, even though that can be a little woo-woo and can turn some people off. There are some very practical and grounded impacts and uses for the preparations that everybody can understand. Wow, cool. You know, I've not heard that good of a explanation about biodynamic agriculture ever. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners. Sure. You said that was 1925 that he gave those talks? Uh, June, June 1924. 24. That was a year before yeah. he passed away. He passed away. Yeah, he, March of 1925. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. All right. So let's boil this down. So we've got a lot of backyard, front yard gardeners, orchardists that are doing work. How do we take all of this that we've been talking about and apply it in our front and backyards? Like I said a few minutes ago, so much of what I've become, I guess, is where the work that I do is crop neutral. And it's all about soil. And there's three pillars to understanding good, good soil. One of those is the chemistry, one of those is the physical makeup, and the other is the biological makeup. Oh, and nice. So, so somebody, anybody, the physical, the physical makeup of a soil, I mean, you can, but generally the physical makeup of the soil 
is very difficult to change unless you bring in a lot of amendments. So if you have a heavy clay soil and you want more sand, you could bring in tons of sand and mix it in and change the characteristic that way. But for all intents and purposes, the soil, is, the soil, physical characteristics of the soil are what they are because of the geological processes that have occurred over thousands, millions of years in whatever your particular area is. Uh-huh. The chemistry is also pretty hard to change. Even if you have a soil that has a high pH or a low pH, we can balance that, that pH. But over time, if we do nothing, it's always going to tend back to its natural state. So if we start with an acidic soil and we add lime and we raise that pH, and if we do nothing for 20 years, that pH is gradually going to migrate back down to a lower pH. But the chemistry is where we can have the most impact on things like pH, on the mineral makeup, so all the the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the potassium, the magnesium, all the micronutrients. Those we can do in terms of different types of additions, including the biodynamic preparations. The biology is the one thing that we've overlooked for far too long. Now, it's taken on a a much greater prominence in agriculture the past five years or so. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to that you can do you can you can spend two hundred dollars to do a very complex soil food web test if you want to, and those are really interesting to look at because it gives you a kind of a lens on your soil that you don't get any other way. But if it's just kind of like a backyard gardener, you want to know what the soil biology is. You know how biologically active is your soil. There's some very simple ways that you can do that. One is take a standard shovel, a spade, stick it in the ground, and with whatever soil you dig out with that first scoop, count the number of earthworms that are in it. Mm. And mm-hmm. I've, there's, there's not a scientifically verified number, but I've heard that if you have 10 or more earthworms in that scoop of soil, that it's a pretty healthy soil. Oh, that's the a next- great place to look. Yeah, and and they're very. Everybody knows what earthworms look like. Exactly, and, and you can you can count them quite easily. You don't need a fancy microscope or anything. Yeah, the next thing you can do is to look a little bit deeper, and you can look in there, and there's a lot of macro and micro invertebrates that are in there, insects, for lack of a better term. Some of them are as small as fleas, like like springtails. Others are a little bit larger. There could be beetles. There could be grubs. And we begin to kind of look at that and look at the, the number and the diversity of those micro and macro invertebrates. And then we can, if you really want to get you know, detailed, you could take a, so- a sample of soil and dilute it in some water and look at it under a microscope. And at that point, you begin to see things like protozoa and nematodes, you could even look at bacteria, certain bacteria and fungi under the right type of microscope and get an idea of the type of diversity that's under there. But for somebody who's, you know, just starting out and wants to get like a baseline, stick a shovel in the soil, take a scoop out. And if you've got earthworms, you know, you're in pretty good shape. If you don't, then you need to probably work on that. And then that's where looking at the physical and chemical amendments, so things like compost or biochar, wood chips can work, you know, lime for raising the pH. And if you do a soil test, they're not very expensive. You could send a a sample of soil off to a local land grant university that's got a soil lab, or there's a number of private companies that also have soil testing labs and get a report back. And if you're deficient in a particular nutrient, you add that particular nutrient back in there. And there's a lot of organic alternatives uh, that you can use, uh, including compost, which tends to be very compositionally tends to be very diverse, very complex and, and a good place to start. 
what I have found in growing food for decades is that the best thing to do here in the desert, because we have very clay-like soil, is just add lots and lots of organic matter, whether it be compost or planting mixes in your garden beds or woody mulch in the basins around your trees in your walkways. How much would that help? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, you can, as I was saying, I mean, you could either get really detailed in terms of your analysis or assessment of your soil, or, you know, you could do something pretty straightforward, like add compost. I mean, you're never going to go wrong with compost. It really helps to beef up the soil in terms of aeration, porosity, for this, which is good for water percolation and water retention. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, in fact, I just finished writing an article about this on biochar, which is, is that's, you know, even in the world of compost, biochar is something that's relatively new to most people if they haven't right. heard about it. Mm-hmm. But that tends to be like, it tends to be a great equalizer because it's a carbon sponge for soil biology, for nutrients and for water. And in the same way that compost provides a lot of surface area for nutrients and water to, to adhere to, to help moderate, you know, extremes in the environment, the biochar does that, I think in a, in a higher level way over the long term, it does it differently. So it, it, it's not, it, it's, it doesn't just make the compost better, but it makes the whole system that much more resilient. When, and if we boil it down, isn't biochar just burned wood? Well, it is, but it's burned at a very high heat and then extinguished before it burns. Down. Uh, you don't want it to burn to ash and you don't want to extinguish it too quickly. Otherwise, you just have charcoal. But what you want are some very fine particles of burnt wood that have retained, you've essentially burned all the sap and water out of them. Mm-hmm. And you're left with these small particles that have micropores and channels and rough edges. So there's a lot of surface area there. Uh, and when you look at all this, the small part, and they're, you know, pretty tiny, they might be, yeah. you know, a, ha- a quarter to a half an inch in size, but it's, then you end up with like just this immense amount of surface area where water and microbes and, and minerals and all the things that you need to have a balanced system can hide out. Yeah. You know, one of the magical places that I found that at is our local pizza oven joint. They make organic pizzas. And Mm -hmm. so on multiple occasions, I've gone over there. They give me the ash. That's what we were originally looking for, for the chickens. But what comes out also are these small chunks of burned wood that are porous and yay. So look at your local uh, pizza joints for that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, if there's barbecue joints around, any place that uses wood to cook will you know, give you that. And the ash is good, too, because, I mean, that's, there's a lot of good nutrient in there as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Well, thank you so much for that, Michael. I've never heard such great descriptions of biodynamic before. So that was and I learned some things. In fact, that's part of the reason I love doing this podcast is because I get to meet with people like you and learn new stuff. So thank you for that. My pleasure. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. The reality is that I like to push the envelope. <laughs> so I fail I fail every day. It's how I learn. Um, I think that it's important to be very, especially in this day and age, to be very innovative and to be very unique uh, in how we look at things, how we approach it, uh, not be afraid to try new things, and not to be tr- afraid to fail at new things. One very discreet incident, though, of where I failed sincerely was I took a couple of weeks off in, a, it was the mid nineties. I took a couple of weeks off to go to a, actually a fruit conference. And when I came back, my trees had been entirely infested with spotted teniform leaf miner. 
mm. to the point where it's, you know, 10, 15 acres of fruit was just devastated. The trees were brown. Defoliation was going on. Uh, my heart sank into my stomach and they recovered. I recovered. But what I learned from that is, is that I can't take my eye off the pitch. I have to be very attentive and very observant at, at all times. And if I can't be there, I need to have somebody else who is there making sure that things like that don't happen. Yeah. You got to have your eyes on what you're growing. That's for sure. And what do you consider your biggest success? I have to say that my biggest success is my family. I just, my, my wife and my son are, are amazing and very supportive of this wacky lifestyle, this wacky career that I've, I've taken on. Right. They benefit quite a bit because I bring home really good food. I would have to say that that is my biggest success, non-horticulturally. But I think it also, in the face of diversity, adversity, that the ability to remain passionate, curious, and optimistic about the future uh, after so many years and so many ups and downs is probably my biggest success because it would be easy enough to just be a grumpy old farmer or a frumpy, grumpy old farm consultant. But I'm pretty optimistic. There's a lot of good energy, young people that are getting into farming. And as bleak as it may look some days, uh, I think that we've got huge potential, not just in this country, but globally to, to turn things around. Yeah, well, and uh, learning and discovering new, more niche or compact ways to grow food in our local areas, which you mentioned earlier, is, you know, that's really important. So keeping our eye on that that's going to be the where I think where the biggest difference is made. Absolutely. And what drives you? This goes back to when I, I used to spend a lot more time backpacking and camping, hiking in the outdoors. Uh, for a, a while, I was very interested in conservation biology, wilderness preservation and protection. And I think what drives me is just the future of the planet. The fact that some days it, is, it does look pretty bleak. Mm hmm. And I, I guess I feel like I have something to offer without being too egocentric about it, that 38 years of farming, of seeing a lot of ups and downs, of staying curious, passionate, and optimistic, that I can help the next generation make this a better place. And you know, it's, it probably won't happen in my lifetime, but I do think that there's a lot that we can do over the next 30 or 40 years I hope I have something to add to that. That's that's really what drives me. I, I mean, I like to grow great fruit too. I mean, that, there's a there's a certain upside to having <laughs> delicious apricots or right. great raspberries or apples. But I think fundamentally, it's about sustainable agriculture and the future of the planet and trying to pave a, a way for for others to really make a, a difference in a way that we haven't substantially over the last forty years. Nice. Thank you for that. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I had a hard time because there's actually two books. Great. Bring them on. So the first book is A Sand County Albanac by Aldo Leopold. That's a book that I never, ever get tired of reading. And the other book is The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. And I think those books are both so, they're different, and they're, but they're so profound mm -hmm. about the importance of biodiversity, of nature, of the current state of agriculture. You know, Wendell Berry published The Unsettling of America in 1972. I can't remember when exactly a Sand County Almanac was published. I think it was in the 40s. Yeah, I think so. I think um, that's right. But, you know, but basically not only has nothing changed tremendously for the positive, it's mostly changed for the negative. And so they're, they're both very prophetic, but they're also very inspiring to, I think, people who are either 
just getting started uh, or who don't understand where we are in our agricultural timeline. So, yeah. Well, thank you for that. I was, I laughed when you said uh, Sand County Almanac. I recently had my hand on that book on my bookshelf. It's a good one. That's for sure. Yeah. There's, there's, there's two books I've, um, I've had multiple copies of over the years uh-huh. just in order to give them away. And that's one of them. So, yeah. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Every morning, get up, stay curious, strong, passionate about what you do. You know, it's, it's easy to get sucked into the vortex of all the, the bleak news that's out there. Yeah. Uh, but you know, as, as long as you stay curious and passionate, you can't go wrong. So there you go. For sure. One of the things I've recently started doing, and I've done this periodically in the past, I just stopped listening to the news because it just drags my butt down so much. It's just, I don't need it. So I find a few good podcasts to listen to and uh, that are positive and happy. What about you? What do you do to keep positive in all of this? Um, I write a lot. You know, I, I keep a journal. I, I plan on writing a book over the winter. Um, I've got a lot of material that just needs to be refined to go into that book. So that's a part of it. But I really follow my heart. You know, there's you know, there's a lot of ways I could get just depressed about what's going on. Yeah. But being optimistic and curious, uh, I find too many things that pique my interest that I just I want to you know learn more about. Right now, my my big interest is in mycology, growing mushrooms both for food and uh, and medicine, but also just you know the the fungal nature of our soils, which is so critical to what we were talking about earlier. And so, yeah, I just find too many interesting things to be curious about to get too sucked into that right. news, news cycle. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I loved our conversation and the previous ones we've had because I, I know what I can count on with you. And that's that I'm going to learn some new things when we talk. So thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, they can go to our website, which is www.knowyourroots.com. And there's only one R in there. So it's know you roots. If you want to pronounce it, mm-hmm. they can also email me at Mike at knowyourroots.com. K-N-O-W-Y-O-U-R-O-O-T-S.com. Perfect. And that's, this, those are the two best ways. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash know your roots. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.